Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us. It is episode 93. We are recording on Sunday, September 20th at 3 p.m. Pacific time, just a few hours before the Seahawks showdown with the New England Patriots. Uh, I am your host, Terry Plucknett, and joining me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, Zach, how's your fantasy football team doing? Uh, that's a good question. Should I, should I look them up? I have I haven't looked you, them you may, up. Um, you might need to. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, you know, this has been the first September in recent memory that I think I've watched the NBA more than I've watched football. I, I, I think, think it's a safe that's bet. That's pretty safe yeah. to say, considering <laughs> it's a September where that that has NBA basketball going. I know Todd beat me in week one last week, and uh, and my team just got screwed by uh, Saquon Barkley tearing his ACL. He gets me. He gets me eight yards in week one, and then he tears his ACL in week two. I mean, I'm gonna win though because Aaron Jones got me 41 points. I, I do. I do think we need to quickly talk about the Seahawks though, because you're both wearing Seahawks uniforms today, and uh, it, it it is ex- We were actually we moved up the taping of this podcast to accommodate the Seahawks game tonight. I think my bold prediction is they win by 40. They, they, come on, they've, all, they've always owned Cam Newton. Cam has nothing against the Seahawks except, you know, maybe that playoff game. They've always owned Cam Newton, but they've always won like 16-9 to 9 against Cam Newton, though. So, we'll, we'll see. Todd, how's your team looking? Uh, I mean, they're good, pretty good, but Zach's wife has Josh Allen, so... He put up like forty points, so I'm, I might lose. <laughs> the sunken place. How, how, how have you looked up yours yet, Zach? How's it looking? Oh no, I I didn't actually look it up. Maybe oh you didn't actually look. Maybe it up? I'll just go this whole season without looking it up because you know that would probably mean <laughs> I actually win the the league. You know, like isn't that sort of how fantasy football works? Sometimes. Right now, I have a ninety six percent chance of of winning. Against who am I even playing? I don't even know. Oh, I'm playing Josh, one of the many Joshes in our league. Anyways, uh, Todd, I wanted to ask you because uh, we've been talking about this, uh, texting back and forth this week about how crazy it is that all these sports are conversing at the same time. And you were telling me just how insane it was yesterday that Notre Dame was playing on the USA Network. And, and then we were talking about how in the world is CBS going to do Masters Sunday and NFL Sunday at the same time in November. So, uh, yeah. yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I was wondering that when they first announced the Masters date, like how they're going to do that, because they have such a, a big package for college football and for the NFL, and it's not like they just, like, give up one of those windows, but apparently that's what they're doing. They're going to they're gonna get rid of the first window of NFL games on Masters Sunday and then then start the second window after that, which is crazy because they're the most watched, like, events of the year. But the one, one thing, I mean, it is so crammed to the point that Fox gave up their contract for the U.S. Open just so that they didn't have to deal with it, <laughs> like, like, like because the, the, they have their NFL package and they have the big uh, college football package, too. So they're just like, yeah, we'll just give up the last, like, 10 years of our contract on the U.S. Open. <laughs> 
even for the one year that it was going to be messed up. Well, yeah, I mean, it, and it just doesn't make any sense anyway because they, they have a big Major League Baseball package too. So it, it, it never worked out really having it on Fox. But uh, I just think it's, I, I think it's crazy that, that, that they went to that extent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it was it was just weird hearing Joe Buck call golf. But I mean, he, he's he's pretty solid. I mean, what we found out on Thursday. New NFL Hall of Famer Joe Buck, because he's gonna be going in the Hall of Fame. But uh, yeah, it, it just sounded it just sounded weird. It, it it made a lot more sense this year being on on NBC. Yeah. Anyways, all right, uh, Zach, what are you drinking? In honor of you, Terry, I'm drinking a gimmicky uh, seasonal brew. The Free State Brewery out of Lawrence, Kansas, has their Oktoberfest out, and it is delicious. Two solid thumbs up. Great holiday fun for the whole family. Nice, nice. Well done, well done. I think we there's like a couple breweries now, Free State and Ridgewalker out here that are like unofficial sponsors of the podcast. Yes. But instead of like them giving us stuff, we just keep giving them money to get their beer. <laughs> and then give them free publicity. <laughs> if you're listening out there, free sponsorship right here. Hey, it, it wouldn't take much for you to sponsor. Just give us a couple beers mm-hmm. for the for the podcast, like once a week, and we'll be happy. Yeah. Uh, Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, well, obviously we are deep diving a movie that takes place in Scotland, so I had to go with some scotch, the Lagavulin 16, because why, when else am I going to drink scotch? Well done, well done. I I thought about doing something like that. I um. I, and I didn't go to the brewery. I decided I wasn't going to, and then I got really bummed because I remembered too late that they have a perfect beer for this podcast. They have a, a scotch ale, and it's called Scotch Waffles, And uh, but I didn't go get it. So what I have here, I've got a, a tall boy of, um, this is uh, Founders Brewery, and this is their all-day IPA, uh, and uh, it's pretty good. It's really refreshing, which is good. That's what I needed. And one, I only have one of those. So once I'm out of that, so when the night we watched Braveheart, um, my uh, we, we decided, all right, we need to have something themed here. And but there's no like Scottish beer, so the closest we could come up with was Irish. So I've got a Guinness for when I run out of this. So nice. It works. It works. All right. Uh, well. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe and rate and review. Uh, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Stitcher, we're on, um, we're on, where else are we, Pandora, and uh, Spotify. Find us on any of those. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, all that fun stuff. Okay, it's out of the way. Um, let's see here. Todd, what have you been watching this week? Uh, so, I watched the Nicolas Cage movie, of course, and I chose it because the title is similar to the title of the movie that we're reviewing, and that's Running with the Devil from 2019, directed by Jason Cabell, and um, so it's about this uh, this overdose of a the sister of a of a federal agent, and then everyone like trying to like find out why the dope was uh, fatal and like where it came from, and it's like full on self aware stuff because no character has a name. Their their character's name is just like their role in the movie. So the agent in charge is Leslie Bibb, who is Pete's ex wife from the League. Megan, I, I knew that. I saw that right away. I was like, oh man, I haven't I haven't, thought, I haven't seen any, her in a long time. But uh, so she's like a the agent. She's tracing the drugs up through 
the cycle. Barry Pepper plays the boss, who's the CEO of uh, the international conglomerate, who hires Nicolas Cage as the cook, who is a quality control. Is, is that hold on? Was that his full his full character title? What the guy in charge that hires Nicolas Cage? No, it was just he's the boss. <laughs> the boss is his character. Oh, okay. but, no, that, that's what he does. Though he's a CEO, but uh, Nicolas Cage is the cook, who's he's the quality control expert. So he. Um, uh, goes to every meeting of the dope being uh, passed along uh, to test the quality of it to make sure no one's getting shorted. Clifton Collins Jr. plays the farmer who harvests the coke. Lawrence Fishburne is the man who's a dealer. And Adam Goldberg is the snitch who gets caught and it kind of uh, makes everything unravel. It's sort of traffic-esque in uh, how, how it's told with the doc, doc, uh, semi-docudrama feel, but there are occasions when it like becomes an action movie. And Lawrence Fishburne is weird in this. He's like a sexual deviant. Like, he's a druggie, and he, you see him, like, choking his bishop at a peep show, and which is odd, because that seems like the role that Cage should have played, because uh, Cage is, like, uh, really restrained in this. It's, like, his most restrained leadish role since, like, Lord of War. But uh, if he would have switched with Nicolas Cage, it would have been really cool. Uh, Cole Hauser's also in it as the ex- executioner, basically doing his uh, Rip Wheeler from Yellowstone. And it's... Uh, it's a bizarre movie. Uh, Savages is probably its closest relative, or maybe Domino, but it really tries to be traffic. The The director is actually a former Navy SEAL who worked in the drug drug uh, trafficking, uh, so it, uh, it I guess it has some credibility. And uh, it has a really distinguished cast, which is weird because nobody's really the lead. They're all just, like, in the periphery, but uh, it's a cool story, sort of. It's two and a half stars. I have it somewhere between, like, Wind Talkers and uh, The Weatherman, but nothing like either of those. But nothing like either of them. Okay, I have a few thoughts. One, isn't Leslie Bibb, isn't she Mrs. Sam Rockwell? I don't know. Do I have that right? She's me, good. I feel like that's right. I feel like that's right. Anyways, um, and then, uh, is is there a more, like, perfect typecast than Adam Goldberg playing a snitch? I mean, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it he, really it's well. like the role he was born to play. <laughs> yeah, he, he does seem like he's on drugs all the time, too, anyway. So it, it, it really works in this movie. I don't know. Clifton Collins Jr. as a farmer also feels like it's almost like typecasting. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They're playing to, playing to strengths in this movie, I guess. So is this like one of those movies where they like... They just don't name each other, and then the end credits give them, like, the names of the farmer and the soldier and the cook or whatever? Or, like, do they well, actually call each other cook? No, they just don't call each other by name. But, like, when a new character uh, shows up, it has this, like, title card that slams down in the middle of the screen. Like, that, that oh, says, I love like, that. the boss. <laughs> you know? And, like, like, trying to be Tarantino. Or it sounds very yeah, G type of deal. Sort of. It, it, I mean, it's jarring at first, but I mean, you get used to it, and it actually is kind of cool. But yeah, it, it took a while for me to realize that nobody really had a name. I, it was, I, I, and then I looked at the, the IMDb page, and that's that's what they say. It just says like the cook, and the snitch. That's awesome. All right, cool. All right, I'm gonna go next. Uh, my anniversary watch this week goes back to 2010. This film received one Oscar nomination, and it was for Best Original Song. You always know you're getting a, a, a solid film when you get one Oscar nomination, and it's for song. And this is uh, the film Country Strong, uh, starring Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, Tim McGraw, uh, Garrett Hedlund, and Leighton Meester are the main characters. Um, it, it's it's the story of a, uh, of a country pop star 
played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who's dealing with some uh, some substance abuse issues, uh, following some tragedy in her life, and uh, and it's her getting out of rehab and trying to resurrect her career. Tim McGraw plays her husband slash manager. Uh, Garrett Hedlund plays um, a, an up and coming. Uh, kind of budding country star that also um, on the side of playing in bars worked in her rehab facility. And so he became a really close friend of hers. Uh, and Leighton Meester plays like the next pop country pop diva. Um, it, it's the, this definitely has a very low ceiling. I mean, you can just tell by hearing it. Um, it you, you know, when Tim McGraw is in a movie, you know, you're getting a, a certain type of movie. I mean, this was like the year after he starred in the blind side. And, and so you, you know what kind of movie you're kind of getting. Gwyneth Paltrow feels really weird in this role. Like, it is the, the least Gwyneth Paltrow role I think I've ever seen. Like, it just doesn't feel right. It, 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 it just is strange. Um, the, real, uh, the real surprise of the film was Garrett Hedlund. He actually is really good in this. Um, I really liked him. Uh, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I was entertained by it. But like I said, it's a film with a really low ceiling. So... Pleasantly surprised gives it two and a half stars, um, and uh, it, it's it, it goes in some very predictable places. It has some really pl predictable plot points and storylines, um, but you know it wasn't a waste of time. So two and a half stars. I have not seen it. Yeah, I have. I kind of figured haven't either. So you're saying that the the transition to acting by Tim McGraw. Not as seamless as, say, like, um, you know, anyone in Nashville or, or uh, you know, um, uh, Oh Brother Art Thou. N not, as, not as natural is what you're saying. Yeah, it, it, it's, I think he, he only acts in certain types of movies. That, 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 and uh, where, yeah, I, I'd say that that's safe. Especially at that time. I mean, it, there's a reason this was his next project after... After the Blind Side, it kind of has has a similar kind of vanilla vibe to it, and then tries to be be more than that, but it really doesn't necessarily work great. But like I said, it's not a waste of time. Has there ever so. been a movie where Nicolas Cage sang country music? Because that sounds like a missed opportunity for Country Strong. It does sound like a missed opportunity. I don't even. And, and anyways, the song nominated was called "Coming Home," and uh, it it it's a decent song. I remember the song. Yeah. I remember the movie coming home. But I'm guessing that's different. I keep on trying to remember the song, and it, I keep on thinking the song should be country strong, but it's coming home. It, it, it would fit perfectly into the song. It, wouldn't, it would be seamless, but missed opportunity. All right. Zach, what'd you watch? So, you know, both of you have your gimmicks. You know, Todd has the uh, Nicolas Cage stuff. Terry has the Milestone movies. I'm going to introduce my gimmick, I think, which is Random Canopy movie that has, like, three votes. And uh, actually, the one I watched <laughs> this week had 67 votes. And, you know, I don't live a very exciting life anymore, but there is nothing quite like the rush that I get when I hit play on the button and use one of my 10 movies that I'm allowed to use for the month on a movie that I did no research on whatsoever. I mean, it could be terrible. It could be great. It could have been trash on Rotten Tomatoes. It is like a funky adventure that is just really, really exciting. And I think that says more about my life than it says about 
actually the movies. <laughs> but anyway, the movie I watched this week on my Magical Mystery Tour on Canopy is called Collisions. It's from 2018. It is by a writer-director-editor named Richard Levian, and it tells the story of... Um, a family in San Francisco, and they are a Mexican-American family, and it is revealed pretty early on that although both children, um, a 12-year-old girl and her younger brother, um, both of them were are uh, born in the United States. The mother is an illegal uh, alien or undocumented, um, and uh, she is basically found by ICE and taken away and put in this sort of um, holding facility. And so this girl and this boy have to uh, get to her and they have to kind of go through all the bureaucracy of finding out um, what facility she's in, where she is. It's not in San Francisco. They think she might be in Phoenix. Then she goes to Bakersfield. And so to accommodate them, they contact their only known relative, who is their uncle. Uh, his name is Evencio, and uh, he is uh, estranged from the family because there's definitely some drama there that the movie goes into that involves the, the father who is out of the picture. Um, and so uh, it's a little like the Italian movie I assigned Todd a few weeks ago, Eladro di Bambini, in the sense that it is about a very reluctant parental surrogate who has to transport these kids across country. And um, it sounds like it's sort of a cheap, sort of sentimental, fun movie, but it really isn't. It's really about the sort of heartache that this, this family has to go through, not just the fact that the mother has been taken away, but also that this estranged uncle is back in the picture and he really doesn't like the kids very much. I like that the movie really showed how gruff he was. He drinks a lot. Uh, he um, just doesn't seem remotely interested in being a, a good parental figure at all. Um, I think this is a really interesting movie. Again, it only has 67 votes, but I think it tells a unique perspective about ICE and undocumented um, people in this country, but it shows it from the perspective of children. And, and these, of course, are often the, 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 the most uh, significant victims of these cases. What happens to these children who are, of course, naturalized citizens because they were born in the United States? Um, it's a sad story, but the movie has a lot of life. It's actually really well shot for a low-budget movie, and it is pretty compelling. I give it three and a half stars, um, and, you know, check it out. I thought it was really, really cool. Good, uh, adventurous time on Canopy, because, you know what? The truth is, the majority of movies on Canopy probably worth checking out. I find it funny that just now you're uh, you're admitting to the fact that you've been doing this gimmick for several months now, because most of the movies that you report on are random Canopy watches with very that's few true. Votes, so I don't think I've ever been let down by Canopy. You know, Canopy is like a good old <laughs> friend, it never lets me down. Now, now during during like the hardcore quarantine, did your uh, did your playlist total go up to twenty per month? Because mine did. Yes, mine did as well. Okay. Mine yeah. never went above five. <laughs> really? Ours is always. Mine's always at ten, and then it went to twenty during uh, like March, April, May, June, when libraries were shut down. This movie does not I, have I, very I good know... reviews. Like it's got, it's got a forty-three percent <laughs> on Metacritic. The, the collisions? Well, I mean, yeah. I'm sure it hasn't been widely reviewed. It might have gotten trashed by a few people, but you know, the people that actually saw it, I would assume liked it i think it's a very well-made movie it's the kind of stuff that can, that maybe pov on pbs would show or something like that i i know what you mean by ha that rush of using one of your plays though oh it's a thrill man I, there's nothing quite like it it is exciting mm -hmm. you press that play button there's no going back baby i know i know it's, it's and, and, and it's a thrill until i realize that i've i think at max i've used like two in one month <laughs> 
I think there was one month I got down to maybe three left, and I was living on the edge, man. It was like, I was like Keanu Reeves in Point Break. It was like really, really, you know, on the edge, being a, uh, you know, rebel for sure. All right. Cool. All right. Well, let's get into our featured review so we can uh, we can talk about that and then uh, on to our deep dive. So featured review is a brand new Netflix movie just came out uh, this weekend. Uh, it is uh, The Devil All the Time. You got time for a sinner. You know, I studied something. It's called the delusion. A belief that is untrue. It is our delusion that lead us to sin. Zach, that's the title. The Devil All the Time. He was just talking about how he couldn't remember the title right before we got on. So yeah, The Devil All the Time. It is written and directed by Antonio Campos. Uh, it is based on a novel uh, by Donald Ray Pollock, who actually also is the narrator in this film, which I find really interesting. After we watched it, my wife looked up the fact that he doesn't even do his own books on tape, yet he's the narrator of his film adaptation of his book, which is just... It's kind of strange. Anyways, um, this tells a story of kind of a group of characters in Backwoods, Ohio, and West Virginia. Um, and it's it's really a star-studded cast. Robert Pattinson, Tom Holland, Bill Skarsgård, uh, Riley Keough, Harry Melling, Sebastian Stan, Mia Wasikowska, Jason Clark. Uh, you, you've got a lot of, of recognizable faces and recognizable names. Probably the main character, you would say, is Tom Holland who's kind of this, uh, this tortured soul who uh, witnessed a lot of tragedy in his, uh, in his youth when he was a little kid, and, um, and him dealing with the world around him and all the, uh, all the mess. There is so much just, like, horror and just, like, perversion and just wrong in this movie. Um, and I would say that's its biggest flaw, is, like, the first half of the movie is, like, just horrible things happening for no apparent reason. Like half the things that it shows that happen just to show how messed up life can be. It's like, you didn't need to go that far, but you, but you went that far and it really had no purpose other than we're going to be like over the top crazy and, and super in your face about how, how horrible life is. Um, and it really turned me off in, like, the first half of the movie. However, I do have to say, the last, like, hour, um, once Tom, the Tom Holland character uh, really becomes the focal point, the last half hour really becomes quite fascinating, and it's kind of impossible to get into and really uh, and really uh, connect with these characters. Um, the uh, There's so many interesting things going on here. You have some great performances. I think Tom Holland shows that he's much more than Peter Parker. You've got Robert Pattinson in a strange, strange out of left field character, uh, with a, with this bizarre accent that just like screams sleazeball. Um, and, uh, then you've got the crazy Jason Clark and Riley Keough relationship going on. Um, uh, a messed up police chief in Sebastian Stan, uh, there are so many fascinating characters, yet how they all work together, I I don't know. I, I also found the narration really distracting. It's like it's like the writers didn't trust the actors to actually emote what was supposed to be emoted. 
So they needed the voiceover either to let everybody know what was going on or to give the author something to do because he wanted to be a part of his movie um, because this is the only film adaptation of one of his books. Uh, I'm... I'm kind of at a loss of what to think about this. There are some th parts I really, really like, and there's some parts that I really, really don't. I'm giving it two and a half stars for now, but I'm I'm up for being swayed. So I, that, that's where I'm gonna that's where I'm gonna be on this right now. Uh, I'm gonna go to Zach next. Go to Todd. Go to Todd next. Todd, I'll go to you next. Uh, yeah, I agree with almost all of what you said. I also give it two and a half stars. It's it's weird that it was more like thriller than drama, and it really is sort of like nihilistic. It's it if it's it becomes more like a Lars von Trier movie than a than like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, which it really should have been more of a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It also feels like a Killer Joe or like some like post Tarantino '90s movie, but it also kind of feels like an HBO movie or TV show like The Leftovers. Maybe it should have been in long form or something. It's a weird. It's pulpy and it's brutal and. A bizarre showcase for a lot of actors who don't normally get that kind of platform. Like, and you have like every major, like billion-dollar franchise represented here. You have like multiple MCU actors. You have Twilight, Harry Potter, Planet of the Apes, Terminator, It, and Alice in Wonderland. Like, and that's just like the main cast. I, I'd say out of the cast, I think uh, Bill Skarsgård is probably the standout. He's doing like this weird Anis Del Mar impersonation, mm -hmm. it seems like, and but he's really good in it. And I, I think he might be the best actor in his family. Um, Tom Holland is restrained. It's like a, an old Sam Rockwell performance or something like that. But I, I think these kind of movies where the life in these like tiny towns is like really good fodder for film, and because uh, it the characters are so like quirky and memorable, and there's so many of them. Which is why I think, like, the Sandy and Carl storyline should have just been, like, cut all together. I don't think it would have lost anything. It would have been a lot tighter. And Roy is doing this, like, Eli and There Will Be Blood or Mason and Ozark thing where it's, like, he's, like, a kind of a false prophet uh, having, like, a crisis of faith. And it never really materializes being meaningful, but it's, it's always interesting to watch. I think the movie does, like, blow by at 138 minutes. It's never boring. Um... I just think a lot of things could have been cut out and it would have made the, the structure and the editing... Uh, could have been a lot tighter, uh, make it more like a David Gordon Green movie or something. That is to say, this movie is so derivative, which I, I've named like 10 different things that this movie is like, because it, I feel like it's taking from them. And I guess it's not a bad thing. It's just really, really sloppy. And so that's why I'm, I'm doing it two and a half stars as well. Yeah, I, th I think my favorite game now is name that Skarsgård. You know, is it is it the dad, the the vampire, the Viking, or the clown? And in this case, it was, it was the clown. So Exactly. <laughs> all right zach what did you think yeah i thought for sure todd was gonna like this movie so that's that's why i said go to todd um but i'm glad he didn't because this is a thrice declined movie this is like when Catherine o'hara and eugene levy are at the hotel and best in show take back the credit card it's not gonna work this movie kind of sucked i actually dis disliked it more than i think both of you i give it two stars um, I, you know, uh, agree with a lot of what you said. And yeah, Derivative is it's great. I thought this movie, actually the movie that I thought of was Place Beyond the Pines. I mean, this movie is loaded with Place Beyond the Pines kind of stuff. I thought it was Place Beyond the Pines meets the house that Jack built with a little bit of Country Strong. Even though I've never seen Country Strong, <laughs> this movie probably could have been titled Country Strong. Um, so... Um, a few things. Or, or what, what did you think? What did you think the title was? I thought that was a great one. Oh well, I thought it was Devil Thumbs Ride, the Lawrence Tierney movie from the fifties that Quentin Tarantino <laughs> loves. Um, yeah, this t the title's terrible too. 
Um, I will say, though, if I, if I want to get a little bit nitpicky, um, I disagree with a couple things you said. First of all, I thought the first hour was the best part of this movie. Um, I actually thought it got worse as it went along. Um, I thought the most interesting character was the Bill Skarsgård character. He clearly wins the movie, kind of like Ryan Gosling in The Place Beyond the Pines, because the problem with this movie is that actually he's an interesting character and they set him up to be the protagonist but then they off him and i'm sorry if that's a spoiler but it's like he's like you know the most the, the most emotionally compelling character and the character that you root for i guess and the character that you associate with but the movie is like way too um am- interested in being ambitious and bold in its uh what it perceives to be a, a unique way of storytelling which is just you know this framing device with the narration is just you know it's it's very bland i've seen it a, a lot before it it, but it assumes that like people care about the characters in the story, which they really don't. Um, yeah, I was just gonna say this is a movie with Batman, Spider Man, Winter Soldier, and Alice in Wonderland. I, you know, it was uh, uh, kind of amazing to, th- to think about that. I also have to say that there's a part in this movie where Tom Holland basically goes through a process where he duels three people in a row, and he wins all of them. Okay, now, let's get real for a second, okay? Tom Holland, maybe a little bit of a Streisand. I didn't realize he was going to kick ass in this movie like he does. I don't really believe it, though, okay? Where does he get off being great with this uh, this, this pistol that, that he has? And again, I don't want to spoil the movie too much, but it's like, where did this guy get this training, man? He's like, you know, kind of awesome with a weapon, so... I I thought that part was was really unrealistic. I thought this movie was a slog. I actually fell asleep midway through. I thought it was terribly boring. Riley Keough. I mean, I love Riley Keough on everything she's in, and even she couldn't save this movie. Sebastian Stam does some sort of imitation of Heath Ledger in um, The Dark Knight with his, like, face. It doesn't work. Um, this movie is kind of trashy. I agree the pulpy features of it are just kind of weird and misplaced, and uh, it was it was a slog. Uh, two, uh, uh, yeah, a generous two stars for me. See, I thought it was. I thought I thought it was a really short 138 minutes. I, I thought it was thrilling, God, but I just didn't think it was no. good. <laughs> oh, some of those scenes went on and on forever. I thought, but I don't know. It also kind of felt like yeah, season yeah. six of Dexter in, at some points too. Oh, and I thought also Robert Pattinson was terrible in this movie. Like, way over the top acting from him. Like, he's trying to, like, you know, be like, uh, he he must have watched, I think, uh, Robert De Niro and Cape Fear for inspiration for his role. Because that's the only thing I can see, and it just, it's it's not good. It's too much. Yet, I don't think he was the most over the top actor, because I think Harry Melling is kind of carving out, like, the, he is like the over actor of the year. I mean, between yeah. this and the old guard, I mean, he is he is carving out this role of being the over actor. Yeah, that's fair. Like I said, he's he's channeling Paul Dano and There Will Be Blood with a lot of what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I thought the Sebastian Stan character was like this is like what Jeff Galuli would be as a as a police chief in the backwoods, like. It, it reminded me more of his Itania character than anything else I've seen him in. Nice. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, yeah, it sounds like Thrice Decline. Um, and, I, I mean, I would say, and I think Todd might agree, there is some stuff that's that's worth watching in it if this is something that you're kind of interested in. If you're interested in these kind of, like, crime, thriller, horror type of deals... Uh, it might be worth a watch for you, um, but I think we all agree there's just not enough there to to uh, recommend it on any uh, on any front. So, 
Thrice declined. Hey, at least we agreed on something. Yeah, yeah that's a that's a huge step. I'm really happy we we trashed this movie. I thought it sucked. Good call, everybody. <laughs> Good work for today. Agreement. <laughs> Yay, us. It's very short-lived, but, you know, enjoy it while it lasts. Exactly, exactly. All right. Well, let's get into our deep dive for today. Uh, we are going back 25 years today uh, to uh, a big movie, one best picture, one of the top box office movies of that year, I think. I'm just kind of guessing that one. Um, but it had to be, right? Uh, we're talking Braveheart today. The rebellion has begun. And who? William Wallace rallies new volunteers in every Scottish town. we come to fight and to die for you. Stand up, man. I'm not the poor man. Pick a flock of your finest assassins and set a meeting. My lord, Wallace is renowned for his ability to smell an ambush. <laughs> Uh, we, we kind of go through and each get a pick some, pick a movie. This was my pick, um, which is interesting because I think all of us are kind of in the same boat that when we watched it, our, when our experience with it is we like it. It's not like an all time favorite of ours, but we hadn't seen it in forever, but it felt like an important movie to do a deep dive of and an important movie to, uh, to talk about, especially in its 25th anniversary year. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to start with our uh, our trivia like we always do. Zach, I believe you have trivia for us today. Yes, I have trivia, Terry. <laughs> oh, all right, let's do it. Okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's uh, let's start with Todd for for this one. So, Terry, uh, since this this was your your pick, why don't you log off for a second and we'll come back to you? Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's not going to go well. Yeah. Well, it it will be fun. So. Um, I have nine questions worth a total of 24 points. So, uh, here we go. Question number one. What is Mel Gibson's drink of choice? Now, uh, I'll clarify a little bit. The, 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 the drink that he had when he was pulled over in 2006. <laughs> and went on his famous, you know, anti-Semitic uh... Jews control the world rant. I'm gonna... I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know what it is. I'm going to say, I'm going to say it was scotch. No, Mel's not, hey, listen, we're talking about Mel Gibson here, okay? We're not talking, you know. <laughs> oh, so it's Merlot? <laughs> uh, no, it is actually, te- uh, it's actually tequila. Um, okay, um, uh, what are the two other best picture winners scored by James Horner? I'm going to say, uh... Titanic. Correct. And uh, Gladiator. Good guess, but uh, no, it's a beautiful mind. Um, I was going to say that too. Who does Argyle tell young William that he looks like? And we're not talking about young William Miller. Young William Wallace. (laughs) He looks like his mother. That is correct. Um, I'm sure you knew that for sure. Uh, what are the three languages spoken by William Wallace in the movie? Uh, English. Correct. Uh, Latin. Correct. And I'm going to say Arabic. Uh, that, that is incorrect. He he speaks French, although Mel Gibson speaking French is pretty uh, brutal to watch. 
Uh, what is the name of the neighboring clan who joins up with Wallace's men after the first slaughter of the English? And they're the, gu they're the guys who say, don't have your fun without us. The name of the clan? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, it's okay. McGregor's. You weren't going to get that one. How about next one? According to Edward I, who or what is the key to the door of Scotland? I sort of had to throw in these questions just to make this, like, a legit trivia. Um, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, noble is the answer. No, no. Okay. Uh, before the Battle of Stirling, William Wallace instructs the English commander that he, uh, he must present himself to the army, put his head between his legs, and do what? Uh, kiss his own arse. That is correct. Yes, and you even got Which the pronunciation. Reminded me line. of uh, in Tropic Thunder when Tom Cruise is like, "You just need to back up and literally <laughs> your own face." That's what I thought when I heard that line. Nice. Um, leading up to the Battle of York, Edward Longshanks enlists the help of what three other nations' armies? Uh, Ireland. Correct. Um, uh, I don't know, uh, England? No, I mean, that, well, he, he's the king of England, so he, you know, he can't really enlist <laughs> his own army. The other two answers are France and Wales, or the Welsh army. Okay, and then the last question worth a grand total of 11 points. Braveheart <laughs> is one of 12 films to win Best Picture with zero acting nominations. What are the other 11? Slumdog Millionaire. Correct. Grand Hotel. Correct. Um. It, you're allowed a mulligan, by the way, on this question. I am. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Greatest Show on Earth. Correct. And Around the World in 80 Days. Correct. I'm just, like, running through them in my head. Uh, Oliver? No. That's your mulligan. You get one more chance. I believe Ron Moody was, was nominated for Oliver. Oh, uh, oh, Parasite. Parasite's correct. Uh, the, uh, Cimarron. No. Cim Cimarron somehow had an acting nomination. Oh. Don't ask. Maybe William Dix or somebody. Um, okay, well, you got, you did pretty well. You got, um, 11 points, so that is, that's, that's fairly competitive. <laughs> Over half of them. <laughs> that's not bad. Yeah. Well, not, not quite half, but okay. Well, All right. Oh, so, All right. So, it was 24 points. So, Terry, um, we have a total of nine questions worth 24 points. Todd did relatively well. Oh, boy. He got, uh, 11 points. So um, it is not okay. it is not a runaway by any chance. Um, our, well, I have no confidence in my abilities right now. So I, I have I had no confidence in coming up with these questions. So we'll just have to see. Um, <laughs> first question: What is Mel Gibson's drink of choice? AKA the the what was he drinking when he was pulled over in two thousand six and went on his Jews control the world um, tirade? <laughs> um. Uh, I'm gonna go with scotch. That's also what Todd said. Um, 
<laughs> I don't think he's quite up to that level of classy. Um, he his drink of choice is tequila. Um, that was that was actually my second guess. Yeah, <laughs> he was in a movie called Tequila Sunrise too. Um, okay, so what are the, this two two points? What are the two other Best Picture winners scored by James Horner? Uh, Titanic. Correct. And Dances with Wolves. No. How did you not get that? I even penciled in that you would get this question. No, the other one's uh, Beautiful Mind. Come on. Oh, gosh. I forgot he did that one. That's all right. So. Wait. Yeah, John Barry okay. did Dances with Wolves. Okay. Um, who does Argyle tell young William that he looks like? And we're not talking about young William Miller. Young William Wallace. Uh, and, not, and not talking about uh, John McClane's limo driver? No. Okay. Um... <laughs> Uh, what does it say? Looks like. Oh gosh, I have no idea. I actually got this one right. Yeah, Todd somehow <laughs> got it. Uh, it, he it's he says he looks like his mother, but which you know, I mean, there's probably oh. one of one of two guesses you could probably make on that one. Yeah. What are the three languages okay. spoken by William Wallace in the movie? Uh, English. Correct. French. Correct. And oh, what is the other one that's being spoken? Um, gosh, uh, I'm gonna go Celtic. No, the other language is Latin. Well, I, I, I wanted to go Latin, but I thought that was wrong. Dang it. What is the name of the neighboring clan who joins up with Wallace's men after the first slaughter of the English? And it's the it's the guys who say, "Don't have your fun without us." I don't remember any of the clans' names. <laughs> it's uh, Mc I don't know. McGregor's. Yeah, there was no way you were either of you were going to get that question. I don't know why I put it in there. According to Edward the I wouldn't have gotten it either. According to Edward the First, who or what is the key to the door of Scotland? The, the nobles? That is correct. <laughs> Brad. Big brain on Brad. Um, okay. Uh, before the Battle of Stirling, William Wallace instructs the English commander that he must present himself to the army, put his head between his, his legs, and do what? Kiss his own arse. That is correct. <laughs> Leading up to the Battle of York, Edward Longshanks enlists the help of what three other nations' armies? Uh, the Irish. Correct. Um, the Irish is not the name of the country. Well, but he, 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 Ireland, fine. Um, France and Spain? France is correct. Spain is not correct. The other country, the other army was, the was Dutch? Welsh. I don't know. I guess, Welsh. I guess oh. Wales isn't a country, but it was the other army. Um, yeah. I was going to the... actually say Wales, but I, but I mean, it's not, yeah, it's not a country. That's why I said It was England. the, the Welsh Bowman. Yeah. I'm, I get, yeah. I, I should have maybe phrased that question a little better. Okay. Last question. This is worth 11 points. Um, yeah. Braveheart is one of 12 films to win best picture with zero acting nominations. What are the other 11? And you are in honor of Scotland. You are allowed one mulligan. <laughs> I like how you did that there. I like that. Uh, okay. Without one 
acting nomination. Correct. All right. Well, I'm gonna start with uh, Slumdog Millionaire. That is correct. Uh, Grand Hotel. That is also has correct. To be correct. Those are literally the first two that I said. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I got a couple in my head, but I wanna. I don't know. Just for the record, you, um, you're you're at nine points right now. You need two to tie and three to take the lead. Okay. Okay. No pressure or anything, right? Um, chariots of fire. That is incorrect. I think Ian Holm got a nomination for that one. Yeah, that sounds right. But you have your mulligan, so... I'm going to go with something random and say Around the World in 80 Days. That is correct. Okay. You're still alive. It felt like one that wouldn't. Um, Oh, Parasite. Parasite is correct. Now it is a tie, um, eleven all. I knew there. I knew there was a recent one, uh, Return of the King. That is correct, and that is the winning tally. And Terry, you have one trivia. Can you think of any others? And I, I probably shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> the Sting. No, uh, The Sting was nominated, I think, for Supporting Actor, I want to say. But be- the o- Best Actor, Robert Redford. Oh, was it? Okay. So oh, did he get in there? Okay. The other 11 films were Wings, All Quiet on the Western Front, Grand Hotel, An American in Paris, The Greatest Show on Earth, Around the World in 80 Days, Gigi, The Last Emperor, which I never would have gotten. I, I totally forgot oh, that. yeah. I thought Peter O'Toole uh, was nominated. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Slumdog Millionaire, and Parasite, most recently. I thought the last emperor had a had a uh, had a supporting actor nomination. Interesting. Okay, because I thought about that one, but all right. Hey, well, I won. I, I had zero confidence, and apparently, I I should have. I don't know. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about Braveheart. Um, since I won and I picked it, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it. Braveheart. If you have never seen it, first off, if you've never seen it, you should like pause this and then go watch it. Go spend three hours on the couch watching this amazing movie. Um, it's a story of William Wallace, uh, told by Mel Gibson. Uh, he was a Scottish revolutionary back in the like the 1300s, somewhere in there, and uh, his struggle against the uh, the British crown trying to. Uh, get independence for Scotland and make it its own country. Um, there's uh, a lot of like recognizable faces going on throughout it. It's got some pretty great battle scenes. Um, it, and it's it's a pretty entertaining three-hour movie. Um, this is one, like I said, I probably watched this for the first time... Oh, somewhere in like the 12 to 15 years ago range... Um, I did not see it near when it came out. Um, and when I saw it, it was a movie that a lot of people had told me, oh, this is like the greatest movie ever. Like I knew so many people that this was like a top 10 greatest film of all time. And it's not that, but it is really good. Um, it is very entertaining. It, um, I don't think it deserved best picture simply because it came out the same year as Apollo 13. Um, but, uh, but I have I don't have any problem with it getting the notoriety it's gotten. I don't understand how people think it's the greatest film of all time. But it is a very it is very entertaining. Like if you're into like the medieval warrior type 
stuff, this is a definitely a movie that you are going to be all over. So um, th- we watched it this week. My wife had never seen it before. Um, and, uh, and she loves that, that, um, medieval type stuff, it, which was telling in the fact that, um, I had seen it before and she knew more about the William Wallace story than I did going into the movie. And I'd seen the movie and she hadn't just because she knows stuff about William Wallace. So she was like predicting what was going to happen next. And I was like, I, you haven't seen this. How do you know? And it was, it was pretty funny, but, uh, yeah. I, I, I hold to the fact it's a great movie, but um, not as great as a lot of people say. Um, but uh, but still uh, still worthy, I'd say. So uh, let's go uh, let's go Todd next. What do you think of a uh, of Braveheart? Uh, well, I, I mean similar uh, feeling to that to you that like when uh, in like high school this was everyone's favorite movie for some reason, and I mean this is not my 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 thing. Like I. I, I mean, I watched it probably when I was in high school. It was the only time I ever saw it, and I gave it three stars. I'm, I'm still kind of okay with the movie, but it, this is not the kind of movie that I, I seek out. I don't like this. I don't like Gladiator necessarily. It's not it's not really what I like, my, my style, but I actually think Rob Roy that year is better than Braveheart, but um, it's, I don't know. It, it, it's a, I guess it's entertaining. It is a long movie, though, and I, I, I have a hard time, like, understanding what they're saying a lot of the time, and it kind of takes me out of, like, the actual drama of it, but I don't know. I'm, I'm okay with it. Mel Gibson is a good director, and I don't know that he should have played the lead role in this, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, that, that, and I can see that point. I, I Watching it this time, I noticed the fact that it was Mel Gibson in that lead role was just distracting. Regardless of how good he was, it was distracting that he was it, and uh, and uh, I thought that was that was kind of interesting. He looks like George of the Jungle. <laughs> I can see His, that. His like hair is constantly blowing in the wind, and like I, I kept thinking like he looks like Brendan Fraser. <laughs> nice, nice. Zach, how about you? What's your experience with Braveheart? So Braveheart's one of those movies that like. Apollo 13, not like Paul 13, excuse me, like Forrest Gump and A Few Good Men. There was a time when this movie was on TNT or TBS all the time, and I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that's where I watched it. Um, I could probably say that like Forrest Gump, I don't know if I if I could honestly definitively say that I'd seen it all prior to rewatching it. Um, definitely not a movie I really grew up with. I knew people who liked it. I watched it maybe once or twice in college, but again, kind of like in and out, not really sitting down and actually watching the whole thing in one sitting. And, uh, it was a unique experience. Um, you know, it was like, I vilify it because it's the movie that beat Apollo 13 at the Oscars, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So I have an, I guess maybe an unfair grudge against it, but you know, I got to say watching it again, I'll, I'll just go into it. It was. It is a a big, dumb, long, um, action movie. And I, you know, sometimes big, dumb, long action movies are fun. Like, you know, maybe like uh, you know the well, the first Transformers movie, or I don't know, something like that, right? But when I like my big dumb action movies to not win Best Picture over Apollo thirteen, and I like my big dumb action movies to be under say two hours, and I like my big dumb action movies to not be directed by a raging anti semite um, abuser, and I like my big dumb action movies to be a little bit more historically accurate. So all that's just sort of a long winded way of saying that 
it was a fun, big, dumb action movie that never, ever should have been remotely considered for the Academy Awards. Yeah, it, and I, I always think of Braveheart in the same category as Gladiator, as just kind of these movies of, how did that win? Like, how is that, how were these movies in the, in the mid to late 90s and then into 2000 for Gladiator, how are these Oscar-worthy films outside of, like, technical categories? I mean, the, the fact that there's no way Braveheart wins Best Picture today. No way. There's no way Gladiator wins Best Picture today. Well, it, it, I don't know about it just, that. Not, I, I don't know about that either. It's I mean the, the English Patient is the same way. It's it's the big spectacle movie that always used to win Best Picture. It's inspirational and that I mean that is pretty much guarantees that nobody's really gonna hate it. And so I think with the preferential balloting, it probably would even be more of a landslide win. Eh, I maybe I don't know. It just doesn't feel like the tone of what Best Picture and, like, Oscar films are nowadays. But then again, I don't think films like this, like, you don't see three-hour epics anymore. Well, So uh, there's uh, that, too. Okay, so this is my theory about why it won. And and this is maybe a transition into the 1995 Oscars. But, like, I think in 1995, you know, we're coming off the heels of 94, which was one of the best years ever. We've talked about this. But 94 is like the year of Pulp Fiction, right? And we are already seeing like Kevin Smith movies and we're already seeing Steven Soderbergh. We're seeing the rise of independent cinema and it is taking over the Oscars to some degree. I mean, obviously Pulp Fiction didn't win, but you know, even Linklater movies. So there is now this rising threat among the studio system that these indie movies are gonna take over. And so there is a counterinsurgence, an overcorrection at the 95 Oscars that we need to nominate the big, dumb, stupid, studio movie the spartacus of the 1990s if you will and so um i think they they reacted that this movie winning best picture is absolutely a reaction against those smaller indie miramax type movies that won until of course the next year when a big budget miramax movie won that was quote-unquote literate but uh this is like you know basically the 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 jack palances the charlton hestons having their revenge on you know the the what what we call it the sissification of hollywood i mean even movies like dances with wolves and unforgiven they were they were essentially um revisionist westerns and so you know this this is the the counterbalance to that is braveheart dominating at the oscars and uh, you, that's a that's a fair point of it it's uh reverting back to to kind of classic hollywood at the same time i mean that year you look at what else was nominated you had the talking pig movie and the italian film so i mean it, it's not like they they were going with just like straight convention when they were voting for for best picture um yeah the 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 three-hour epic i i like the the spartacus of the 90s that's a great way of putting it um it won but you also had a lot of other, I mean, this might have been the most eclectic group of nominees ever. You had the British period piece directed by Ang Lee. You had, you had this, you had Apollo 13, which technically was, was by far the best movie. Then you had the kids movie and the foreign film. I mean, this is such an eclectic group of nominees that you really don't see ever when it comes to the Academy Awards. Yeah, well, okay, so let's talk about the 95 Oscars. To me, the 95 Oscars are like a March Madness tournament, okay? They're like a March Madness bracket. The number one seed was Apollo 13. It had to be. I mean, it had the budget, it had the good reviews, it had the, you know, the everyone loved it, right? The number one seed goes down, 
All right, it goes down. It's Virginia circa 2018. It goes down it, before it even started because it wasn't nominated it, for Best Director. It, it exactly. Really yeah, director. after winning exactly. the, the, the DGA. It goes down. Number two seed, Sense and Sensibility, the Merchant Ivory-esque literate movie, goes down because no nomination for Ang Lee for Best Director. So in swoops, the three seed... Braveheart, a movie that no one would have really considered as the serious Oscar contender, comes out in April. It's this big kind of macho movie that some people, you know, they think they make fun of. And frankly, Braveheart goes up against Loyola Chicago in Il Postino and Babe. Those movies had no chance against it. So I think because Ang Lee and Ron Howard and maybe to a lesser extent Martin Scorsese were, were snubbed as best directors, it was always kind of going to be a shoe in for Braveheart. Um, I mean, that's the kind I, I of think movie the that, reason... they, that they won at the time. Like, Forrest Gump is, is a big-budget movie. That, I mean, and then even Unforgiven, Schindler's List. Like, these are the kind of movies that win. And then it continued through the 90s until they eventually got to American Beauty, which is the most, biggest outlier of any Best Picture winner, really. But you could not win Best Picture in the 90s unless you had a Best Director nomination. And that is the only reason I think Braveheart won. I mean, I think Argo certainly changed that, but it's still sort of Academy conventional wisdom that you have to get a Best Director nomination to seriously be considered. Yeah, I think Driving Miss Daisy was... That, that's the only other was, outlier, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's an outlier, and, and it, from there, you have to go all the way to Argo, I think, right? Yeah. To get the next one, yeah. Um... I think, here's my theory on why Apollo 13 did not win Best Picture. Um, I think it was Tom Hanks' fatigue. Um, You just came off of him winning back-to-back years Best Actor for Philadelphia, and then Forrest Gump, he wins Best Actor, it wins Best Picture, it sweeps its way through the Oscars, and then he's right back into into the awards hunt with Apollo 13, and I think it's telling he doesn't get even get a nomination, um, and uh, then... Ron Howard doesn't get director. I think it was, we're not going to award Tom Hanks again. And it, it just felt like that there was that fatigue there. But then again, five years later, they don't worry about that fatigue when they nominate uh, Russell Crowe three years in a row and two of them win Best Picture. So, uh, I don't know. That That's always what I thought. I remember thinking that kind of in the moment of like, wait, how did Tom Hanks not get nominated and this not even it was a stack be considered a threat? It, true, it was, it was. However, I mean, you've got uh, the the two-time re- defending champ of, <laughs> of Best Actor with a Best Picture-nominated film, and he's the lead, he's the heart of the movie, and they don't even, they don't even nominate it. I, I, it's kind of crazy to think about. Well, listen, okay, they, Ron Howard at that point was still Opie. I think there's still some backlash to the idea of Opie being considered a serious di- movie director by the, by the snobs at the 95 Oscars. But, well, and what's he coming off of? Parenthood and Backdraft? And I mean, paper. he hadn't really established... Yeah, he hadn't really established himself as a as a uh, yeah. an award-worthy director. I mean, yet. it's just like a March Madness tournament, because another factor that led into it was Dead Man Walking didn't get a nomination for Best Picture, nor did Casino. It's like, it's just all these kind of events coincided to enable Braveheart to kind of take over unexpectedly, you know? It's like one of those March Madness years where three seed wins because all the other seeds got knocked out. I, I think this is more like like uh, like you've got Apollo 13 is a number one seed, but it's like, St. Joe's with uh, Jameer Nelson and Delonte West. It's like because they're 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 the team the team that's like 
yeah, Ron Howard isn't supposed to be a part of this conversation. Why are they? But I guess they're good enough to be a number one seed, and they got some decent players. They went undefeated. I don't know. So where's so the other Las thing Vegas I was thinking of? Is, into there, like, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Then there's leaving Las Vegas. Leaving Las Vegas. I mean, that, that, they're a Horizon League team. They're uh, you right, know, IUPUI. They're, they're, they're Butler. <laughs> yeah. Like, who would who would be nominated? Who would be nominated for this Best Picture race now? If they if this were to happen now, well, if there were like 10, revisionist history, or not. Lord, uh, just go five. Just go with the five. Who would be the five? Would it still be those five or? Who would be yeah, sure? Let's go ten. Let's say those five. Who would be the next five? I don't care. How do, however we want to do it. <laughs> That's I a think, really I mean, tough question. <laughs> leaving Las Vegas has to be has to be considered and, and probably and is a part walking. of the race. And Dead Man Walking. The American President um, that would get a nomination. That would have to. Maybe. Would American President or Nixon? Which one has a better shot? Because I don't think you take two President movies. American President wasn't even nominated for screenplay. I don't think that would be a Best Picture nominee. Yeah, I'm thinking. I'm thinking like Nixon and Casino. Yeah. I'm th- I mean, because that's your Usual Suspects, you would think. I mean, it's yeah. rare that you ever get a, a screenplay. Usual Suspects would absolutely be nominated. Yeah. Well, Toy Story. Are. Yeah. Are there any are there any films that were nominated for Best Picture that don't get nominated today? El Postino. Like, does Babe get nominated today? Probably. El Postino does not get nominated. Well, I, I yeah, that's probably fair. I mean, what what big budget movie for May has been nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars? I think you can make the case that Braveheart doesn't get nominated today. Good reviews, not great reviews. You know, not like, I mean, it's a big budget movie that made money, but like. I you know we've we've seen a bunch well, of those. It doesn't that... really matter anymore. Like when you have Black Panther getting nominated when it's released in February, I I don't. It doesn't matter anymore. Like when you're released. So so Braveheart won five Oscars and won picture, director, cinematography, sound editing, and makeup. I guess because they painted everybody's face blue. I don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, no, I want, <laughs> I want to guy, talk about that. They make him look point. like Emperor Palpatine, the, the father of. Oh yeah, yeah, the the father, yeah. I was All right. I was gonna say about his makeup. He looks like a fan of like the 1982 Milwaukee Brewers or something. Like, you know that that paint. He looks like a fan at like a hockey game or something. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, uh, I yeah, I think this uh, this Oscar race is a really fascinating one. It's one of the reasons why I thought it would be an interesting one to talk about because it was such an interesting race, and there were so many interesting pieces involved. And the fact that the five that got nominated are the ones that got nominated, and somehow Braveheart is the one that kind of came out as like you said, Zach. It was a slam dunk. Everyone knew Braveheart was winning. You, you know when the announcement was made, um, and the fact that through all of what this year looked like that it's the one that did is uh is really interesting and and you might be right it might have been a, a reaction to the fact that it was a uh it was the big budget uh studio epic as opposed to to try and fight back against the the indie movement of tarantino and pulp fiction the sissification of hollywood you sissies <laughs> well and, that, and that'd be why you have a you have we're not gonna have a you know a film like a, a talking pig win best picture we want manly macho anglo-centric male-centric domination we want spartacus to win it, it is one of the like most testosterone filled movies to win best picture i will say that 
at least at least the last 30 years i love todd's point about high school i feel like every high school football player must have had the quote from this movie in their high school yearbook you know every man dies but not every man lives it had that had to be right that had to be the number one yearbook quote of 95 i also think for a lot of people like that a lot of people like replace the movie poster of scarface with braveheart like like that that's the level this was on (laughs) uh all right, well, let's get into some of the discussions we're going to have around um, around Braveheart, inspired by Braveheart. And the first one we're going to do is we've been building these Mount Rushmores for each deep dive that are somewhat related to the topic at hand. And we were looking at a couple different ideas of what we could do, and we settled on the Mount Rushmore of, um, of directors, uh, or of someone directing a movie starring themselves. Uh, this, this is, you know, one of the ones... Is this like the only time, uh, maybe not the only time, but it's one of the few times in, in, the la- in the last 30 years that someone has directed themselves. Uh, there's a couple others, and I'm sure we'll talk about uh, maybe, we'll at least talk about that person. Uh, directed themselves to a Best Picture win. Um, and so directing, yeah, so Mount Rushmore of uh, someone directing uh, a film starring themselves. I think I feel like there's an easier way to describe that, but I'm having trouble finding the, the way to say it. <laughs> Director stars. I mean, maybe you could say that. Um, yeah. So, so Mount Rushmore of director stars. Let's say it, let's put it that way. So, um, can I, can can I throw before we start submitting our our submissions here? Can I uh, can I make a proposal that um, the one that we all agree on is Citizen Kane? Can we just like sure. that's fair. Set that now. It's done. <laughs> the film that is kind of consensus greatest film of all time written and directed and starring Orson Welles. I think we can say that that's the one we're all going to agree on and let's go from there. Okay. I'm glad I'm glad you guys agreed because in in the back of my head I was waiting for Todd to say like, dude, I only have that as like a two and a half star movie. I think How Green Was My Valley totally should have won that year. Um right. because well, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> You, it's not. The, it wouldn't have been the first time you would have done that. I mean, you you said Rob Roy's better than Braveheart. No, I haven't seen Rob Roy, but Rob I, Roy's my I, favorite I historical epic, actually. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, um, I need to see Rob Roy. I, I I do. It's Tim Roth's nomination. So Zach, I'm gonna go to you first. Uh, what is your submission for for the Mount Rushmore of uh, director starred movies? I actually had a hard time with this question. Um, there are a lot of good choices out there, so I went the, the simplest route, which is. Um, Dances with Wolves, Kevin Costner. I think it's a movie that it, I, I'm always really, I really love Dances with Wolves. I think it's actually almost for me a borderline argument whether it's maybe better than Goodfellas. I, I don't think it is, but um, I don't have a problem with it winning Best Picture in 1990. I think it's actually an incredibly directed movie, and you know, the fact that it was Kevin Costner's debut as a director is all the more amazing. Um, and he's great as an actor in it as well. So, you know, it was, it was the Braveheart before Braveheart. I mean, it, you know, Mel Gibson wins, Kevin Costner wins five years before. And I think, uh, in the case of Dances with Wolves, it's way more justified. Yeah. As much as I have my completely unwarranted hate of Kevin Costner, Dances with Wolves is an amazing film. Absolutely amazing and, uh, movie. And, and he is amazing in it. Yeah. That was not where I Good thought call. you were going to go. Wow. Well, uh, Todd, I'm going to go to you next. Where are you going? Well, I thought, I thought for sure Zach was going with either Do the Right Thing or Annie Hall. But, 
Okay, I'm going with Singing in the Rain, which is obviously the greatest musical of mm. all time. And gee, Ooh, it's a good great one. Call. Good call. I, mean, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, what is there to say about Singing in the Rain? It's, I mean, it's it's the it's the perfect movie, the perfect Hollywood movie, the perfect movie about Showtime or show business, not Showtime, show business. And uh, yeah, Singing in the Rain. I, that was the first thing I thought of. I was like, yeah, Gene Kelly, of course. I was fully expecting you to say The Good Shepherd. Well, I've, I've brought the Bronx Tales, the second one I wrote down. Oh, well, okay, there you go. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, Good Shepherd doesn't really star De Niro. Um, and, and that's one of the things we had to call, we had to specify. It, it's starring the the director. The, it's not like we could say, oh, this one Hitchcock movie, because he was in the background of this one scene. Um, it has to be starring that person. Um, but yeah, Singing in the Rain, I hadn't even thought of that one, but that's, that's such a great call. Uh, the... The Make Him Laugh musical number is one of the greatest scenes, like, in movie history. I mean, I I, I will watch that on repeat whenever I get a chance. Gosh, there's so many good ones out there that I have to pick between. Um, and there's so many different ways you can go, too. I mean, do you go... So, the one I was mentioning earlier that I, I, not, I don't think I'm going to pick it, but you got to mention Clint Eastwood as probably being the best person at doing this over the last 30 years. I mean, he's he's directed films starring himself to two Best Picture wins in Unforgiven and Million Dollar Baby. Um, over the last 30... No, what was it? Over the last, like, 25 years, he's only been in two films not directed by himself. And that's uh, In the Line of Fire and uh, <laughs> Trouble with the Curve are the only two movies he's been in that weren't that weren't directed by himself. Uh, but he does a whole bunch of other stuff, too. He's become more of a director now than an actor, and I think that's that's telling of how talented he is. Um, I just watched Pollock recently. I gotta mention that because, I like I said when I reviewed it, Ed Harris shows a complete passion project there. Um, I think one of the more interesting ones to watch moving forward is Bradley Cooper after what he did in A Star is Born. Um, and, uh, and he showed he's got some real talent behind the camera and he's obviously a very talented, uh, uh, actor. Um, Todd made a couple good points with do the right thing and Annie Hall. Um, but I mean, if we're talking this, I I've got to go, I've got to go super old school, super classic. And I'm going to go with my favorite Charlie Chaplin film. And that's modern times. Um, and, uh, it, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to argue with Charlie Chaplin. Uh, and, uh, so many of those silent stars directed themselves like, like Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton. They were in charge of every aspect of their film. And, um, and some would probably say city lights is better than modern times. I, I'm much more of a modern times fan. I think it, it's just so much fun yet such a great social commentary of the time too. Um, and it, it was kind of starting to break out of the silent mold. Um, but Charlie Chaplin is is the original when it comes to to directing himself on screen. So I'm going I'm going modern times. That's a great one. This is a great that is list. Not, that's not the way I thought this was gonna go. <laughs> Which is good. <laughs> but I can't. Uh, but I I'm I'm perfectly happy with what we came up with too. The other ones I, I was I, thinking about were Fences, Hannah and Her Sisters, and Manhattan are my favorite Woody Allen movies. And of course, the one that had my heart is South Park: Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. That's Trey Parker, of course. He's <laughs> the voice of multiple characters. That's awesome. 
Uh, yeah, the only and the only other one that I didn't just mention that I had written down was the general, which was Buster Keaton, and uh, and again that's the same same idea as uh, as modern times. So, all right, so our our Mount Rushmore of uh, directing uh, directing themselves is uh, Citizen Kane, Dances with Wolves, Singing in the Rain, and Modern Times. That was that might have been like the most classic of our. Uh, of our Mount Rushmore's we've ever done. Like the most recent film is 1990. I don't think we could say that about any other film, any other Mount Rushmore we've ever Listen, done. Listen, I was seriously considering Freddy Got Fingered for this list, I will say. And I think it deserves <laughs> at least an honorable mention. It, well, cra- it, cra- it cracks my honorable mention list. <laughs> barely, barely cracks honorable mention. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, let's get into our recasting. Uh, and I think this will be a lot of fun. Uh, recasting Braveheart today, uh, what it would look like, who would be in it. Um, Todd, I'm going to start with you. We're talking, uh, we're talking William Wallace first, played by Mel Gibson. Uh, who did you recast in that iconic role? Uh, so I did Michael Fassbender. I think he fits that way better than, than Mel Gibson does. And I don't know. I don't know if he can direct. He might be able to do that too. But it, it seems like a role that he would make uh, less kind of quirky and more more broodingly and serious and everything. And, uh, yeah. Michael Fassbender, I think, fits. Yeah, that, that, that'd be a good call. He, I mean, he's good in everything. It's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to argue with Michael Fassbender. All right, uh, I'm gonna go next, um, and uh, I have a theme to my to my recasting here. Uh, as we were watching the movie, um, my my wife mentioned it, and it's really true that um, as you watch Braveheart, there is so much um, like Game of Thrones in Braveheart, or maybe so much Braveheart in Game of Thrones, um, and because it's it's just kind of a similar you know medieval epic battle knights all this stuff. Um, fighting for thrones. Uh, so my entire recasting is uh, actors from Game of Thrones, and uh, I feel like if, you do so that every Game time of Thrones. Anyway. It's sometimes, sometimes, but I mean, I, yeah. Anyway, so my William Wallace is Richard Madden, um, who played Rob Stark. Uh, he's also been in a bunch of other stuff. I, I think he should he should be the next James Bond. Um, he was in 1917 last year. That was probably the biggest one. He was also uh, Elton John's lover slash manager in uh, Rocket Man. Uh, I think he would be after seeing him in Ro- as Rob Stark. He is the perfect person to uh, to take on William Wallace if you're thinking about Game of Thrones wise. So that's my pick, Richard Madden. Zach, how about you? So in the behind the feet scenes feature on the DVD. Mel Gibson said that the three movies that inspired him most for this movie were Spartacus, The Big Country, and Double Indemnity, which I thought was a strange choice, but I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he was drunk. Um, So I've decided to cast this movie as if it was made in 1960, which was the year of Spartacus, and clearly the only actor who could really play William Wallace is John Wayne, the Duke, who, like Mel Gibson, would have looked totally too old for the role. But let's be honest, John Wayne looked too old for every role he was in, even when he was 29 years old. I, I want to hear John Wayne try and do a Scottish accent. Well, he was in that, he, was, he did an Irish accent in that one movie, right? Right, yes, yeah, that was, 
That's what that was. No, he replaced a couple mice with me. The quiet and man called it an Irish accent. The quiet man. He was in the quiet man. He he had an Irish accent. Oh, I thought you were talking about what was the one movie we watched that uh, that what was the what was the come to the stable movie we did with him and um, oh and the, Mitchum. the the ship the movie? long journey home the long journey yeah. home yeah he did sort of do a, well, a broken how do you remember that, that title but you can't remember the title of the movie we were reviewing. I remembered that title. He didn't. <laughs> I would have never remembered that title. Oh. Uh, what? What? Yeah. Anyways. Double thumbs a ride. That's what I remember. Okay. Uh, Todd, you're next. Uh, we're doing uh, Muron, played by. Oh, where's her name? I lost it here. Hold Catherine on. McCormick. That's it. He he knows that one. Catherine McCormick. Um, Todd, who do you have as, uh, as Muron? Uh, well, I looked up a list of Scottish actresses, and so one that came up was Karen Gillan, and I think she'd be way better than Muron, uh, as Muron, because, uh, that actress isn't really good, so, I don't know, Karen Gillan needs to have more drama roles, because she's really talented. That's a good call. I like that one. Um, I, uh, I went with Amelia Clark, uh, Daenerys Targaryen. Uh, that, that's my, that's my, my Miron. I think she's, the, the main thing with her is she has to have a distinctive look. I mean, that, that's one of the things I notice, you notice about her is Miron stands out in a crowd and that's, and Mel Gibson kind of makes sure of that in how he directs it, but that's, that's the key and, and Amelia Clark definitely would. So. All right. Zach. So Miron is what? In the movie, supposed to be maybe two or three years younger than William Wallace. Of course, Catherine McCormick is looks like about maybe 25 years younger than Mel Gibson. So I had to go with someone who was hilariously miscast as being way too young for John Wayne, and that was Natalie Wood. Although, young Miron would have been played by Patty McCormick from The Bad Seed because her last name is McCormick. Perfect. Uh, yeah. I thought you were going to say, like, Tatum think... O'Neill or something. <laughs> I don't think she was born in 1960, but... <laughs> Probably. I mean, well, how old was Mel Gibson? He was 39? He was 39. Oh, he looks so old in this movie. Like, how are you supposed to believe in this movie that he's in his early 20s? I mean, give me a break. He was 39 years old. 39. That was it. <laughs> okay uh let's see here next we've got uh robert the bruce robert the bruce played by angus mcfadden todd who you got uh it seemed this one seemed easy i said jamie bell that's the kind of role that he does he had the, a similar kind of role in like defiance uh he's a he's a good actor and uh yeah i think that i think he would take that kind of role very nice i like that uh, i can see that uh, I'm going with uh, I'm going with Jon Snow himself, Kit Harrington. Um, you've got Robert the Bruce is this character with a lot of like inner turmoil and anguish, and uh, and Jon Snow is filled with that. And so Kit Harrington, I know he can do it. So that's who I'm going with. Zach, how about you? I went with Todd's favorite actor, Montgomery Clift. You know, excellent nice. at playing tortured characters who can't figure out their morality. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I think it's an easy call. All right, all right. Queen Isabella, played by Sophie Marceau. Todd, what do you got? Uh, Florence Pugh, uh, because 
I think mm. it works, and because she's awesome, and I think that she should also be a Bond late girl at some point. Oh yeah, that's probably happening. You gotta think that's happening at some point. Good call. I like that. Alright, I'm going with Natalie Dormer. Uh, she was Marjorie Tyrell, uh, who was probably the most conniving of all of the, outside of, uh, outside of, uh, what's her name, uh, Cersei. Probably the most conniving of the women in, uh, in Game of Thrones and know how, knew how to play the game. And, uh, Sophie Marceau and Queen Isabella, they kind of show that they know how to play the game. So, uh, that, that's, that's who I'm going with. Zach. Okay, I went with um, Catherine Deneuve, a young Catherine Deneuve, right off of uh, Umbrella. No, shit. Wait, I'm sorry. Well, shit. Umbrellas of Cherbourg came after it, so I guess in 1960. I was going to say, I didn't know yeah. Catherine Deneuve was in uh, a movie called Oh Shit. Oh, well, <laughs> this would have been her screen debut in America prior to her screen debut in The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. <laughs> Listen, I mean, I, you know, maybe Bridget Bardot, maybe Sophia Loren, but why not Catherine Deneuve? Why not? Who cares? Uh, <laughs> it works. <laughs> All right. Uh, next we got King Longshanks, King Edward the First. Patrick McGowan played him at first. Todd, who do you got? Uh, it's not that hard to recast one. I said Stellan Skarsgård probably because I just watched his uh, son in a movie. And uh, seeing him as like a king I think would be really entertaining. And he ha always has that sort of arrogance that King Edward has, so... That was sort of where my thought process was. Nice. I, that would be interesting, for sure. Um, th this is where I kind of got the idea to do the whole Game of Thrones thing, because who was going to play Longshanks was pretty obvious. It's Charles Dance, who was um, Tywin Lannister in Game of Thrones. I mean, it is... It's like such a... It, it, long like him, His portrayal of Tywin Lannister is basically just channeling Longshanks from, from Braveheart. So that's who I'm going with. Zach. I mean, this is like, I think one of the more recastable roles of all time. I mean, I couldn't, you know, how is this role not played by Donald Sutherland in 1995? I mean, seriously. He kind of looks like Donald Sutherland. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it has to be someone who would be over the top, uh, shrewdly evil. And for me, there's no one who could choose scenery in 1960 quite like, Orson Welles. They would have to deal with the whole blacklisted living in Europe thing, but uh, I I would love to see him in this role. Nice, nice. That that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I could see like a young Orson Welles being Robert the Bruce. Yes. Yeah. Like go back to like Orson Welles when he did Hamlet. Didn't know Orson Welles do Hamlet. Olivier. I feel like he did. Yeah. No, I know no. Olivier did, but I thought Orson Welles did too. No, Orson Welles did um, Othello. Okay, or in Macbeth. That's the one I've yeah, seen, his, his portrayal of Macbeth. Yeah, go back to like like his, his Shakespearean days doing stuff like that. I could see him being Robert the Bruce. Anyways, all right, next you've got Hamish um, starring uh, originally Brendan Gleeson in uh, probably the, the thinnest he's ever been. Um, <laughs> like I think about like, this was only five years before Mission Impossible 2, and he's looked the same since 2000 till now. He's looked exactly the same, but he looked completely different in this. Uh, Todd, who's your Hamish? Uh, so this is kind of a dumb role. Like, the character is kind of dumb. He, he kind of reminded me of, like, uh, Bluto and Popeye or something like that. So you just need to be, like, an idiot 
Uh, but you got to be a big dude. But but I I went with a good actor anyway, and I said Liev Schreiber. Liev Schreiber as wait a second as a twenty year old soldier. I I don't know if I'm seeing that. <laughs> Fighting yeah, along with Michael really Fassbender. <laughs> Well, okay, that's a fair point. It was it was one of the one of the fun unintentional moments of this movie. Every time Brendan Gleeson got on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this was one of my favorite recastings too. I I went with uh, I went with Christopher Kivu, uh, who played Tormund Giantsbane, the uh, the leader of the of the Wildlings in uh, Game of Thrones. Um, Part, I mean, not only is he huge, but he's also a flaming redhead, and uh, it, it'd be—he'd be perfect. He'd be perfect as as Hamish in this. He's just as like brutish and just like brash and yeah, yeah. It, it'd be the perfect perfect one. Zach, who do you got? Well, originally I went with um, uh, Woody Harrelson because every time they said Hamish, I thought of Hamish from The Hunger Games, which was the name in his, in, that he played in that movie. But uh, for the 1960 casting, there's only one um, over, slightly overweight actor that would fit the billing, and that is uh, Ernest Borgnine. I mean, you know, he, and I would love to see him try an uh, English accent. And he is way too old, too. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> prerequisite <laughs> all right uh so that, that's the ones we did all together um i have some others todd did you get any others no. figured out zach did you are you kidding <laughs> okay i i was having way too much fun with the um with uh, the game of thrones stuff so i i did a few more so the uh, the heads of the clans would be played by uh stephen delaney who was uh stannis baratheon and aiden gillen Littlefinger. i mean if you want to talk about conniving and dealing under the table, I, Littlefinger's the one that does it. Um, the prince would, uh, I mean, Jack Gleason was Joffrey. It's kind of an easy one, but I also went with uh, Geethan Anthony, who played Renly Baratheon, um, mainly because then his assistant, assistant, could be uh, Finn Jones, who's uh, the Tyrell boy that's Marjorie's brother. That, that would have been perfect. Uh, Stephen the Crazy Irishman would be Jerome Flynn, who played Braun. Uh, that that just be that'd, that'd be a perfect one too. And uh, and the leper uh, would be played by uh, Julian Glover, who played uh, uh, Grand Maester uh, Pycelle, just in how he's he's just so quiet and and reserved, yet also conniving and always doing dealings under the tables, too. So uh, I wish I could have done more, but honestly, I couldn't remember enough about any more characters from Braveheart. Because there's like 50 characters in Game of Thrones you could easily put into this world. How about um, Young Murren being played by Brooklyn Prince? You forgot that. Oh, there we go. There we go. Or the girl <laughs> from Girl Meets World. Yes, Rowan Blanchard or Sabrina Carpenter. Either yeah. one. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Who would Nicolas Cage play? Uh, okay, well, for me, there was a guy... I don't even know what his character's name was, but he takes a, an arrow through the chest and then he snaps it off and screams as, as he's throwing a spear across like the, the village and he hits like a random member of the garrison. I, and then he like holds the door open so they could like kind of like ambush the, uh, the, them by like by Hamish coming in. I feel like that's like what Cage would be doing. He'd be like, Dah! and throw a spear or something. Mm -hmm. that, was the, that was the one I could see, actually see him doing. But he was an old man. 
Probably older than Cage. In 1995, I think Cage could have been William Wallace. Nowadays, I think he would be an interesting long shanks. Yeah, I was kind of along the same lines, Terry. I was thinking um, the Royal Magistrate, played by David Gant at the end of the movie. Say Mercy. Um, oh, yeah that, yeah. that definitely had some moments. But I really do think Edward Longshanks on his deathbed is absolutely a, a role that 2020 Cage could nail. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, the, just the, the, the communication with your eyes is all you can do at that point. And, yeah, he would have so much fun. Can you imagine a, a Nick Cage freakout where he can't talk? That would be amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, let's roll through these. Uh, highest war performance. Um, I'm going to go first, and I might be making a, uh, a controversial pick here. I'm going with Mel Gibson. Like, acting Mel Gibson. Because I think, yes, he is distracting. Yes, he looks a little too old. It doesn't. He doesn't quite fit all the time however at the same time he is his uh his demeanor and his um his presence on screen is kind of perfect for the role too because he's he's this like tough as nails guy but also he is this dynamic leader that people are going to follow like when you when you listen to him talk and you hear about how everyone's following him and everyone is willing to to drop everything and go you you think it it makes sense because it's Mel Gibson, and um and I don't know I feel like there's there's few that could have portrayed that gravitas to a role like that. Plus his Scottish accent is pretty spot on too. I, I gotta say that. Um so uh so yeah I'm going I'm going Mel Gibson as highest word. Not to mention it's his movie. I mean he re- he directed it. He's the star of it, and it, you could say this is. This is like Olivier's Hamlet in a lot of ways. So, uh, <laughs> no, no, in, in just in just how how this was that that how how he he put this together as his masterpiece. Not not saying that like it it, it is on that level of, in quality of movie, but just like importance to the actor. Like like you know, if you were to ask Olivier what was his most important movie he ever did, he would say Hamlet. If you were to ask Mel Gibson what's the most important movie you ever did, he would say Braveheart. Because that's that was his passion project movie of building this epic, and he was he did everything with it. Well, that's all I meant. I didn't mean sort of it was reluctantly played that role. I don't like. Supposedly Brad Pitt was uh, the n- number one choice they had, and he didn't want actually, or he didn't. He said no, and then Mel Gibson took the role out of like. Gosh, was there a role in 1995 that Brad Pitt wasn't offered? I mean, he was supposed to be in Apollo 13, too. <laughs> well, this is coming off Legends of the Fall, so it, was a really e- it would have been a really easy transition for him. This would have made a lot of sense, but... Yeah. All right. Uh, Todd, highest war. Uh, I went with Jamie Robinson as young William Miller Wallace, and uh, I don't know. It's his film debut, uh, but he's really good. He's really expressive, and he's kind of heartbreaking, and um, unfortunately, he didn't get any roles after this. Like, his role... Uh, I don't know. I, th- I think he really stands out. And the key is that I actually could understand what he was saying without the subtitles. And he, I think it was the only character in the whole movie. So, Jamie Robinson. Sounds like a running back. Another similarity with Game of Thrones. I had to turn on subtitles to watch the entirety of Game of Thrones just so I could understand what was being said. <laughs> yes. Zach, who's your highest war? 
My highest war went to Tim Roth as Cunningham and Rob Roy, who's better than anyone else in this movie. <laughs> well played, good sir. Well played. I think this movie's ter- right, terribly uh, acted. I couldn't, I, I couldn't in good faith pick any high war performance. I think any of these characters could have been replaced by anyone in 1995. Then, uh, then I'm going to you next. Worst performance. Worst performance, clearly Mel Gibson. I mean, he's... Like, I I think he's terrible in this movie. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about, Terry. Like, Mel Gibson, given the right role, can add a certain dynamism to a performance. I think of, like, you know, Signs or Dreadcast Concrete, Todd's favorite movie. Yeah. Um, But in this movie, he's so old, and his his arms, the forearms are so hairy. It's like maybe Robin Williams (laughs) should have been in this movie. I don't know. He's part elvish, I guess. Um, he, I, you know, he, he just, the, the, the golden locks in his hair at golden hour with the sunrise and the slow-mo and the streaming ocean, the streaming waterfalls in the background. I think it's just, it's sort of terrible. And then, like I said in trivia, his French accent is appalling. I mean, it would put, like, Werner Herzog talks about how he would die before he ever spoke French. That's the way I felt about listening to Mel Gibson speak French in this movie. He spoke like three seconds of French. And his Scottish accent was pretty spot on. Especially in the fact that you can't understand it. <laughs> it's very important understanding the dialogue in this movie. I, I would say the one the one thing with him, like I mentioned before, just the fact that he he looks too much like a movie star to really disappear into this role. I will agree with you there. But I think he gives a pretty good performance. Um, he didn't even get right. the obligatory Best Actor nomination. Like, even Clint Eastwood got nominated. Like, come on. The, yeah. the Academy realized at a certain level that let's get real. And, 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 you know, Mel Gibson is an actor. So, yeah. It's, it's pretty bad. All right. Well, they didn't nominate Ben Affleck for Argo either, so. That's true. True. That's not a bad comparison of, like, Mel Gibson in this moment to... Ben Affleck in Argo. Well, yeah, but they didn't even give like, like, Affleck just... the director nomination. That's how, <laughs> how, how much they yeah, thought of him. Yeah, that... <laughs> All right, uh, Todd, you're next. Worst performance? Uh, I'm with Catherine McCormick as Muran uh, because she doesn't really do anything. She's just there to smile. She kind of looked like a younger, like, Valeria Galino, which I guess is something, but she... I don't know. I think she is terrible, and I, I feel like they didn't let her speak because she sucks anyway, and I don't think that they... She's like a blank look in her eyes. It's really uninteresting to watch. Yeah, I, I agree with the part that you said. He do, doesn't really have... Um, she doesn't really have much to do. So that might be why it's not a great performance. Um, my worst performance is Peter Hanley as Prince Edward. I, I mean, he, he's just... It's just... He's just annoying and bad. And... Yeah... That's all. That's all I have to say. In my 1960 recasting, he would have been played by Rock Hudson. Nice. Uh. All right. It is time for the amazing Larry Big Tim High Roller. Uh. <laughs> Todd, who do you got? Uh, I have Tommy Flanagan as Morrison because he is like the ultimate badass in this movie, and usually those kind of roles go to like the villain, but he is like part of the like the rebellion. And he's also Scottish, but uh, he's he's one, and he's one of the ones who actually stands out as not looking Scottish, which I think is a, an interesting, uh, an interesting thing. But yeah, he he is he is a he's a savage, 
uh, in this movie, and uh, he's he's kind of awesome. Like the one of the characters that I wanted to see more of. Nice, nice. Uh, I've got I've got two that I'm gonna say. Um, one is my my favorite character, and I think it's it might be other people's favorite character, but uh, but Stephen the crazy Irishman played by David O'Hara is just awesome. Uh, uh, he he's a he's hilarious whenever he's on screen. But I'm gonna go with a little more random and uh, a little more minor. Uh, my favorite minor character is James Cosmo, who played Campbell, uh, simply because um, he. Uh, is uh, one of the other uh, inspirations for me doing Game of Thrones as my recast because he played J.R. Mormont, the head of the Night's Watch, uh, in uh, in Game of Thrones. So it, I'm watching him like, hey, there's a Game of Thrones actor in Braveheart. Oh, hey, this kind of is a lot like Game of Thrones. And so, yeah, kind of inspired that. Zach? Um, I went with Martin Dempsey and Jimmy Keough as, well, wait a second. I don't know if these are the actual characters. I went with the midgets at the end of the movie who do their little celebration and their um, performance. Very Peter Dinklage inspired, I think. And um, yeah, I would have much rather seen a three-hour movie about that, like their theatrical troupe, you know, traveling around at executions around England. Like that was some awesome stuff there. So, so your favorite part was when they were filming midgets. Little people, but yes. <laughs> They're filming midgets. Oh, it's, a, it's a quote from In Bruges. It's in Belgium. It's in Belgium. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> that, that's a great one. Uh, biggest stick man. Um, I'll go first. This is kind of a hard one to come up with. I don't know. I'm I'm gonna go Robert the Bruce because I feel like he, someone in that in kind of in that position with that, and he's kind of a good looking dude. You you, you know that he's got to be, uh, he's got to have a have some decent uh, some decent prospects there. So I'm going I'm going Robert the Bruce. Zach, how about you? I went Malcolm Tierney as the magistrate because it's his prima nocta, and you got to think that he came to a lot of different villages and absolutely um i guess got what uh what what the king and the english army was really after so you know i mean yeah not not a very funny one but uh sadly prima nocta which by the way never happened in england one of the many historical inaccuracies of this movie but was mentioned by uh jim on the office in one episode that's i think the first time i heard about it (laughs) nice nice todd how about you uh, I just went with William, because at least we know he's getting it in. I mean, he bangs the, the king's daughter-in-law just because he charms her. I mean, yeah, he's a stick man for sure. I mean, he impregnates we know... her. A what? He impregnates her. It doesn't just, you know. Uh, yes, that, that too. Watch a guy. My boys can that, swim. Maybe that's negative points. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, it's a, it's a positive because you know later i mean in just this classic like stupid melodramatic overly melodramatic uh classic 90s moment when you know uh sophie Marceau tells the king you know that she's pregnant with william wallace's child i mean just who couldn't see that one coming i mean that was like that was just scripted right there that was that was a great moment well and according to my wife that's like legend has it that 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 that's one of the rumors and speculations of how would she, actual like Scottish British history. How would she know that it was his kid? I mean, I guess she's not getting it in with with 
you know, With the, the prince. prince. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably not happening. Friend of Dorothy. Sarzan ticket holder. <laughs> That's why. That's why Renly Baratheon is the perfect one to play the prince. Um, all right. Uh, let's see here. Next, Zach, we're going to you with our with our newly named Swan Oliphant Douchebag Award. Yes. <laughs> I don't even remember the derivation of that name, but um... well, Swan, the Swan family from Best in Show. Oh, okay. And then Todd just and then Todd just said Timothy Oliphant always plays a douchebag, so. It's the Swan Oliphant Douchebag Award. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with um, Ian Brennan as the leper um, because he's an asshole in this movie. Like, he should be defending Scotland. He's talking about, he, he wants to, you know, extend the heritage of Scotland. He wants to get on the throne of Scotland. He wants Robert the Bruce to be a, a prominent member, and he just backstabs everyone. He is the chief architect of William Wallace's downfall. So I think that makes him actually more of a villain, arguably, than Edward Longshanks. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good one. Uh, I'm going with... Uh, oh, no, wait. I think Todd's next. Todd, you're next. I didn't know we had an order. Uh, I, I'm going with Brian Cox as Uncle Argyle because <laughs> his nephew just dies, and the first thing he says, as Zach pointed out, is that he looks like his mother, and that's just a really shitty thing to say, and I, he doesn't even realize that, how big of a douche he's being at the time. Plus, And then he shames him for not speaking Latin. I don't know. He's a douchebag for sure. That's a terrible pick. He's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of this movie. <laughs> He's the reason, I mean, you know, it's not seen because, the, God forbid, this movie actually have, you know, it's three hours long, but you couldn't include a scene of him actually, like, training William Wallace. But, like, he's the reason that William Wallace becomes William Wallace. Yeah, but, all you okay. needed was like a he, All you needed was, like, a, a, a training montage a la, like, Count of Monte Cristo in yeah, the prison with, or like uh, Liam with Neeson, Liam Neeson in Batman Begins. I mean, so many movies have done that better, but it's like this movie, for some reason, couldn't include that. Don't worry, it's, it's, a, it's three hours long, but we can't include a training sequence? Come on. Yeah, but I'm just saying, I mean, that, that's, like, the only time we see him, and it's like, oh, so, sorry, son, I know you're, you, you looked up to your father. By the way, you look like your mom. <laughs> Not your father, your mother. Which is a shitty thing to say. Every it's time I saw Brian Cox in this movie, all two times, I thought about his line in adaptation about how only losers use voiceover narration in their screenplays. Every in this movie I, uses I, voiceover narration. I, I I always think about that when I hear when I hear voiceover narration, and that was one of the things I was thinking about as I listened to Devil all the time. I was like, yeah, that that really was a bad ploy in that movie. Okay, uh, my my douchebag award goes much, to. Though. It reminded me of like Sam Elliott in the like doing his narration or whatever. What in the Big Lebowski? Yeah, that's what it. Okay. That's what it reminded me of when I was in the way they used it. And drinking his sarsaparilla. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So mine is a uh, is Jimmy Chisholm who played uh, Faudrin, who's the guy who shows up with Stephen the Crazy Irishman. And uh, the first time they go out hunting, he tries to uh, chop William Wallace's head off and is only saved by Stephen throwing a giant axe at, at him. It's like, you're, you're going to swear your allegiance, and he's like the normal-looking one, and everyone's worried about the crazy Irishman, and the crazy Irishman is the one that actually ends up being the, the loyal one. So, I mean, the guy who, who walks in and just says, I swear my allegiance to you so I can kill you the first chance I get, uh, that that's about as douchey as you get. At least he doesn't you know, last long because the crazy Irishman. 
It's my island! I love that guy. Okay. Um, Todd, what's the best scene in this movie? Well, my favorite scene is when William is getting revenge on Morty and Lachlan for uh, betraying him. Because oh. it's like a dream sequence almost. Like, he smacks Mornay in the head while he's laying in bed. And it has such an impact, and it works so well that he, like, William gets this look on his face like, Oh shit, that actually worked. Like, he was genuinely impressed with himself. And then he <laughs> slits Lock, uh, he slits, uh, you know, Lachlan's throat and throws him down on the table. Like, it was just an awesome little sequence. And I was just like, it seems like it was out of a different movie. Because it, it does seem like a dream and not, and not like some, like, gritty action scene. Yeah, that's a good call. That's a good call. Uh, that scene was my... so weird. It was like, it felt like a dream. It didn't feel like, like, I was watching, I was like, yeah. is this real? This couldn't be real, right? Well, he, and, then, and Mornay just wakes up from a dream, which is why it does feel how, like a, a How did he get the session. horse up all those stairs? It felt like that scene in <laughs> True Lies when Arnold gets the horse on the elevator or something. Like, it, 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 it was so improbable, but okay, I guess we'll go with it. <laughs> Low key, those movies have a lot in common. <laughs> Actually, that's that's a good conspiracy theory. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, so my best scene, I've got two of them I want to mention. One of them is uh, before the first battle. You know, he gives his huge uh, his huge speech, and then he rides out to uh, to to pick a fight, and and the, just the 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 negotiation of the terms, how he's just kind of riding his horse like, around the other group and, like, through them and, like, bumping them. And I, I just feel that's so playful and so fun and uh, so effective in what he's wanting to do. Uh, I thought that was good. And then uh, near the end, the um, the uh, the goodbye that he has with uh, with Stephen and Hamish. And uh, it's it's where the, the, the line of, you know, Noah, all men die but not every man lives. But that that's not necessarily the part that I that I find um, that I liked about it. It's it's everything else around it of just kind of the just the the that moment and him him talking about how, you know, I I don't want to be fighting, but I need to. And um, and uh, I need to do this because that's what that's what's going to be best for for everyone. And uh, I don't know. I, it just it just is a, is a cool scene and it's a touching scene. And I like that one. All right. Zach, how about you? Well, if, if I'm not allowed to choose the midgets fighting, because that would be my first choice, I'm going to go my second choice is the scene where Mel Gibson has to think about, you know, how are we going to defeat this English cavalry, this massive cavalry that's never been beaten before? And he kind of puts his, you know, his hand on his chin, and then he looks up in the sky, and what does he see? Those long, tall trees, and he thinks, we're going to make our spears longer like male parts, male genitalia, because of the homoeroticism in this movie. And um, yes, that is how Scotland got its freedom, was through William Wallace looking at the trees, finding a way to defeat the massive cavalry, which hadn't been done in two centuries prior. So yeah, let's, the trees are a strong MVP candidate as well. I was going to say the biggest stick men in this movie are all the men holding the giant sticks. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, th this one could go on for a little while. Uh, any any flaws? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll say one really quick. And and like I said, my wife hadn't seen this before. And so as we were going, and she's 
she's big into like the historical accuracy of some of this and she didn't mind much of it but the thing that she like questioned the most was um when um when you know the William Wallace gets betrayed the 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 uh battle is going horribly Longchain starts riding off William Wallace goes after him and then who we find out is Robert the Bruce turns back and to fight him and she just looks and goes who comes to a war ready to joust I mean that that's not a thing <laughs> why does he have a jousting spear this it's not what you do so I like uh, it. yeah that yeah <laughs> so uh, so that was my 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 one big flaw I'll I'll share Zach go for it I mean where do you begin with this movie but I guess I guess the biggest flaw for me well, besides the fact that in the first 45 minutes, the music when uh, Mel Gibson and Catherine Carmack are flocking out in the woods sounds like it's from the lower deck of the Titanic, but that came two years mm-hmm. later, I guess. Um, I was going to say, um, can't uh, Princess, the, the French Princess of Wales, can't she tell when she kisses William Wallace that, he's ke- that he hasn't swallowed the potion? Like, I mean, they, they really lock lips there, and it, it seems a little bit unlikely that uh, she would just, you know, assume that he swallowed it. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a good point. Todd, do you have anything? Uh, well, I, I don't know. I have a problem with the costumes. I think they looked like leftover rags from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like yes. A lot of them. <laughs> yes. And also, I want to know why Mel Gibson hasn't directed like a Shakespeare movie or something. Like, I looked it up, and he has like this 1990 documentary where he was like teaching high school drama classes uh, how to like shakespeare and stuff like his this movie feels like shakespeare there's a lot of like longing and like achingly romantic monologues and shit like you adapt a shakespeare movie with his like style and violence and shit i think it could be really cool and i think that fits him really well but i don't know that he would ever do it i just want to know why he hasn't ever 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 actually tried that well i totally didn't remember he, didn't he Mel star Gibson in the henry the fifth film no he was in hamlet I totally oh, remember. Yeah, that's what it was. It, that was that Polonius guy. That I mean, Cher Horowitz has seen Hamlet. She's a she's a fan of Hamlet. That's something that I thought about in this movie as well, which is um, all of the scenes with the dead people talking and William Wallace's nightmares are like Mel Gibson being way too overly influenced by uh, Hamlet. I mean, he I feel like he wants to make this movie Hamlet essentially, or Macbeth. Yeah, so which why doesn't he actually just go with it? Why is it, why did he try to make Henry V or something? I don't know. I, I think it would work. I think he could do it. He doesn't have to star in it, but he, he probably, I mean, I think he, I think it would be pretty cool. He probably thinks Shakespeare was a Jew. Wasn't it right around this time that Brana made his Henry V? Maybe that's what I was thinking of. Didn't he make a Henry V right around the same that was, time? No, he, in 1989. Like 1989 he, yeah. he, he made Hamlet oh, the next year. The four-hour okay. Hamlet. Which somehow moves faster than this movie. That was, was that, that wasn't Brana, was it? Yeah, it was. was. No, oh. He, really? It was like his first film. Henry V was first Phil, for, No, no, no. But, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh. Hamlet came out in 96. That was the one with Kate Winslet and... Oh. Yeah. Well, the, the, but the, ham, yeah, the Hamlet with Mel Gibson was in like 1990. Hamlet, Mel Gibson, right. That was for, for, uh, Franco Zeffirelli. Again, the one that Cher Horowitz watched. <laughs> I totally remember so, so Todd, Mel Gibson. So, Todd, you mentioned, the, uh, you mentioned the costumes. That was another thing that Cassie had a problem with. Um... Mainly because she said that the Scottish colors in all of their plaid was wrong. 
Maybe we should have had your wife on the podcast. I know. Seriously, I kind of felt like I kind of felt like I should have well, just listen. had Herbie on, and I just step away. But she was totally like, and, and she like looked it up. It's like, see, these are the colors that should have been on there. Should have been on William Wallace's uh, clothing, and it's not that. We really should like, have had what? Adam on. That's the real. How do you know this? Oh, did you did you see Adam got a couple snaps for the Dallas Cowboys today? I mean, Andy Dalton got a couple snaps for the Dallas Cowboys today. Dude, yeah. every time it's it's creepy how much those two look alike. Creepy. And Jesse Clemens. Creepy. And Philip Jesse Seymour Clemens Hoffman. doesn't look like Adam. I don't know what. Okay. <laughs> Todd, LVP MVP. My LVP is Patsy Pollock, who is the casting director, because this is a movie of like just really lame actors. Like none of them have ever been nominated for an Oscar. And her last one before this was In the Name of the Father. You feel like a big sprawling war epic. She could have gotten a really cool cast, but it's really just filled with kind of lousy actors. And uh, she couldn't even convince Brad Pitt uh, to be in it. Like, and her, her career, I mean, it kind of sucks. Like the only good movies she ever cast were The Hours and In the Name of the Father. So she's my LVP. And my MVP is John Toll, who is a cinematographer, because the movie does look beautiful. It's got some gorgeous shots, and it, it never, like, uh, stalls too much on, like, uh, the millions of extras that they have who are probably just, like, screwing around the background. Like, it, it really has an interesting look, and, like, it has a really cool, like, panorama shots of, like, the skyline and the mountains and stuff. And there's always so much going on, and it. it's always captured, and I think, I think the cinematography is really good. All right, all right. Uh, I'll go next. My LVP is uh, I don't even know the character's name or the actor's name, but it's the guy who kills Muron. I mean, it, it was such a it was such a low blow and such a stupid thing to do, and he kind of like woke the beast and caused this whole this whole thing to happen. This whole this whole kind of skirmish revolution to to spark, and it was all because it was all because he he wanted to uh, you know show how cool he was and and kill her and so that was that kind of started the whole thing off and uh it, it, it's it, it's kind of like what what did the uh the japanese emperor is is uh, supposedly said as soon as pearl harbor happened i that may have been the worst mistake we have ever made that's kind of how how you know people had to think after that happened um and then my mvp is james horner i mean listen it just it makes me so sad that that he died so young and we can't hear any more of his scores because just listening to this i could just hear it and go this is a james horner score and it makes me so happy um and and there were there were moments like like zach said there are moments where all of his scores kind of have little hints of each other in them and there were moments where you could hear titanic in there there are moments like there were a couple moments i had to stop and rewind the rewind a little bit be like that moment right there that that was apollo 13 like that, that that transition from this scene to that scene, what the score did there, that's an Apollo 13 transition there. And he was nominated twice that year, and somehow he still didn't win. But um, James Horner, it, it just made me happy to hear, it, hear his uh, his score in this. What? What one best score? Is it Babe? Il Postino. I think that's when they did two scores, didn't they? The comedy score and the drama they score? They did. And he was up against himself for the drama score with, between this and Apollo 13 and lost and lost twice. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the comedy score probably went to someone stupid. Toy Story? Um. Probably. No, Sense and Sensibility would be my guess. I think that one. Music, comedy score, Pocahontas oh. won the musical comedy score. Another Mel score. Gibson movie. And, uh, 
it was an Alan Mank, Alan Mank and Steven Schwartz. I mean, it's hard to argue with them. And then, yeah, Il Postino beat Apollo 13, Braveheart, Nixon, and Sense and Sensibility. But, all right, Zach, LVP, MVP. All right, my LVP for this movie, it's the Jews. I mean, you know, they got screwed over. Not a lot of representation in this movie. Not a lot of representation in a lot of Mel Gibson movies, um, odd, coincidentally enough. Um, yeah, it didn't do too well at the Oscars that year. Um, you know, kind of not a great year for the Jews in, in 95 at the Oscars. Um, I, have, I have three MVPs for this movie. Um, my first MVP is Christopher Azels, who was the sound editor, because imagine having to deal with all of the punching sounds, the horse sounds, and the ah, ah sounds. Um, yeah, that, that's not an easy job. Another um, MVP for this movie is three-hour running lengths because I feel like this movie, it is three hours long, but if you took out all the slow-mo, it's probably about 42 minutes long. And um, Mel Gibson has said, if you look at the Wikipedia page to this movie, that there is somewhere a four-hour director's cut of this movie, and if any studios are interested, they can contact him and release it. I'm sorry, Mel, I, I don't see the, the phones going off the line here. I don't think any, any phones are ringing. Um, studios are not interested in re-releasing the four-hour cut of this movie. This movie is already way too long as it is. And then, of course, the true MVP of this movie, Jesus, because... He's resurrected at the end of the movie. comes comes out the comes on the cross, and you got Pontius Pilate there up there. You got Mary Magdalene. You certainly got Peter. You got all of the Christ uh, figures in the allegory at the end of this movie, um, plus some midgets. And uh, yeah, this is <laughs> this is Mel's ode to Jesus in the twentieth century. And and if no one really uh, noticed, he he then you know made one a little more obvious. And- about nine years later which he has a sequel planned too <laughs> yeah i heard about that all right well uh let's wrap this up with our quotes of the day strawberries not the cheese womack with a little sex in it quote of the day uh zach i'll give it to you first my quote comes from the 2010 golden globe awards when ricky gervais introduced mel gibson and he said, "Now I find my, yeah. Now I find myself in the awkward position of having to introduce him. Listen, I'm sure it's embarrassing for both of us. I blame NBC for this terrible situation. Mel blames. Well, we know who Mel blames. <laughs> oh man! Listen, I did good on this podcast. I wanted to go you into. Did. I, I mean, I li- listen. Mel Gibson is one of the most reprehensible human beings on the earth. Just listen to his tapes with his ex-wife, how he, you know, he says, smile and blow me. And, I mean, he, he's a horrible, horrible person, and I cannot separate it from this movie. I wanted to enjoy his golden locks flowing in the wind. I, I couldn't quite do it knowing how reprehensible a person he is. It, it's definitely a situation where, uh, where you can, uh, you got to do, you do your best to separate the art from the artist, for sure. All right, uh, Todd, your quote of the day. Well, mine actually comes from the 2010 Golden Globes, not the 2015 Golden Globes, exact quoted. Mine is uh, oh. when Ricky Gervais was <laughs> introducing Mel Gibson, and he says, I like a drink as, next as, the me- as ne- much as the next man, unless the next man is Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> and it is the that greatest introduction of all time. Yeah, I also thought about his line where he says, listen, listen, sharing drinks with Mel Gibson, it could be worse. You could be sharing drinks with Bill Cosby. And then then that was the one where everyone was like, oh, shit, he didn't go there, did he? And then Ricky Gervais was never invited back. Uh, 
All right. Well, uh, our, I'll, I'll, I get the last word here, and uh, I'm glad I get the last word here because it's a <laughs> yes. little more serious. Um, so uh, my quote uh, comes from a different 1995 film that we've actually already deep done a deep dive of, um, and that's The American President. And I feel like it's a it's a good theme for William Wallace and kind of a good theme kind of with uh, where we're where everyone's at right about now, too. Uh, it comes from Martin Sheen's character talking to the president. He says, you don't fight the fights you can win. You fight the fights that need fighting. And I feel like that's a great uh, that's a great quote for kind of what William Wallace kind of stood for in, in Braveheart. But, you know, uh, a couple days ago, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And I feel like that's a great theme of what her life was, too. So I'm going to end it with. Uh, the quote from Braveheart, I'm going to go pick a fight because I think that's kind of what, what, uh, you need to do too, is, uh, fight the fights that need fighting and then go pick those fights and, uh, and make them happen. So kind of bringing Braveheart full circle here, talking a little bit about what's going on. So with that, we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back at you next week with another episode until then, uh, have fun watching movies and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.